All right, well, we're picking up where we left off in Exodus. So if you have a Bible, uh, grab it or uh, open to it on your phone. There's also some Bibles in the back. We'll have it on the screen as well. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 5, starting in Exodus chapter 5, okay? So let me give you the quick 10-second overview of where we've been, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. So at this point, we learn that God's people are enslaved, and they've been enslaved for 400 years by the superpower of the day, Egypt. And Pharaoh has chosen to take God's people and make them his slaves. Well, God shows up. He says, I, I've heard the cry of my people to deliver them. That's my desire. That's my covenant promise. And so, Moses, you're going to be the guy that I'm going to use to deliver these people. Okay? And last week, we ended, Scott preached a great message where we ended with Moses telling the people of Israel that this is all going to go down. And what happens? They believe him. They trust God's word by faith and they worship God in faith. Look at the end of verse, uh, I'm sorry, look at the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and Worshipped. So we end on kind of a good note in chapter 4, right? God's word comes. The promise is deliverance. The people have a chance to decide, does God know what he's talking about or not? And that's a faith question. Okay? Does God know what he's talking about or not? Am I going to believe yes or no in light of God's word? The answer is yes. And what does that lead to? That leads to worship. So that's just the microcosm of the Christian life. God's word, I will deliver you. Do you believe me? Yes or no? Yes? Great. Well, then you'll be worshiping me, and you'll find your joy therein. So we end on a good note. End of chapter 4. Thumbs up. Awesome. Deliverance is coming. Things are looking up. People believe in God's word by faith, and it's all great. No, it's not. Chapter 5 comes, and things take a turn for the worse. All right? So let's take a look. Moses and Aaron meeting with God's people, the Israelites, and now they're going to go have a meeting with Pharaoh. Verse 1, chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice? And let Israel go? I do not know the Lord And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Implication, I'm the Lord and everyone obeys me. I don't obey anybody. That's what Pharaoh is saying. So these opening verses kind of remind me of a very common theme that we see in the movies, right? Uh, It's the dummy who picks a fight with someone and they have no idea who they just picked a fight with. You guys know that mo- motif in, in movies? So I'll just give you some examples. So um, there was uh, probably 20 years ago now. Gosh, I'm dating myself. But uh, Terminator 2, Ar- Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he shows up. He, well, he, uh, he gets sent back from the future, lands in modern day wherever we are. And he lands there naked. 
and this big hulking, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator guy. And so he walks into, he just, he lands in this place and there's a bike, biker bar right there. He walks into the biker bar and starts demanding, I need clothes and I need a motorcycle. And these big tough bikers are like, whatever. They blow smoke in his face. The guy takes a cigarette and like extinguishes it on, on Arnold's like huge pulsating pectoralis major. And, and as you can imagine, things don't go well for these guys in the scene. Because they, they don't know who they're messing with. This is a Terminator, right? He's impervious to whatever you've got. I think of um, The Joker, my, my favorite movie, The Dark Knight. And these thugs in Gotham City, they're, they're up to no good. And they look at The Joker and they know that he's up to no good. And they're like, well, maybe we can work together. So there's an opening scene where the Joker comes in and lays out this plan of how they can work together. They have no idea who they're dealing with. They don't, they don't understand that the Joker doesn't submit to higher ideals of money or power. He just, the only thing he wants is chaos. That's all he wants. And so he's not going to submit to them. He's not going to work with them. They're not sharing the same ideals. They have no idea who they're working with. So if you're 30 years or, or younger, of course you've heard of The Incredible Hulk. But if you're my age or older, you probably um, have memories of the cheesy 80s version of the TV show of The Hulk. Incredible Hulk, right? And it was, uh, so today we've got Mark Ruffalo who acts in the, is it Marvel or DC? I don't know which. I, sorry, sorry. I'm not up to speed. Um, so in the Marvel series, you've got Mark Ruffalo playing the Hulk. But back in my day, on the Friday night TV show at 8 p.m., it was Bill Bixby. And he played the Hulk. Well, he didn't play the Hulk. Uh, Lou Ferrigno, who was this bodybuilder, he was the actor who played the, full, the Hulk when Bill Bixby turned into the Hulk. Anyway, so here's the line that was in every episode that, that, that illustrates this theme. He, Bill Bixby, the actor, would look at whoever was making him mad or like coming across him, and he would say... Don't make me angry. You will not like me when I'm angry. Every episode. And so then he would turn it, his eyes would turn green, and out comes this horribly huge monster, all painted green. If you could go on YouTube, I, I did this recently. I went on YouTube, and, and I looked back on some of these scenes, and I can't believe how cheesy that show was. I mean, it's horrible. But at the time, that was Friday night, good TV. It was Dukes of Hazard at 7 and The Hulk at 8, and I'm like six years old, and my parents would only let me watch the Hulk once in a while because then I would get my underoos on, my Hulk underoos, and run around the house, like destroying things. And so they had to limit, you know, put a, put a governor on, uh, on my Hulk watching. But, I mean, that was, that, was, that was heavy stuff back then for me. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry, meaning you don't have any idea what you're dealing with. Or just think of Jason Bourne, right? Jason Bourne doesn't even know what he's dealing with. But someone comes up and attacks him. He's got like ninja moves and all this stuff. And, and, and so people don't, he just looks like this normal guy. But he's really this super trained assassin with all these super human fighting skills, right? People, he doesn't look like that. But they're obviously dealing with something they don't know about. And he doesn't even know about. That's what's a cool part of that story. But this Bible text takes all of these things even deeper. Takes this theme even deeper deeper. Because why? Because the Joker can't turn the Nile River into blood. And, and the Hulk can't send hordes of locusts to eat everything in sight. And Jason Bourne can't cause darkness to fall on the land. But Yahweh can. Yahweh God can. 
And Pharaoh, he admitted it already. We saw it. He doesn't know who is this God? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Admittedly, he's got no idea who he's dealing with. He's lacking clear knowledge of the profundity of the situation he's in. And soon enough, he's going to gather a full picture that will be very uncomfortable for him. But think about another factor that, that, that speaks to Pharaoh's resistance. And I think it's, it's not so much knowledge as much as it's economic. Think about the cultural situation they're in. The whole economics of the superpower, Egypt, at that time was predicated on what? Predicated on free labor. Slavery. So you let my people go, as God says, no way. Our whole economy is going to collapse. That's not going to happen. Like any good leader knows that. I got free labor. That's a good thing going on. I'm not getting rid of it. This country is going well. We're the superpower. We're not changing a thing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? So Pharaoh's just like, get the heck out of here. It's not going to happen. Verse 3, look at it. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met us. This is Moses and Aaron. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So they just reaffirm what God told them to say, second time here. And so now, Pharaoh, I think he might be getting a little exhausted or whatever, he decides to change the subject, okay? And it's not now about his knowledge of this God that they're coming on behalf of. It's something else. Look at verse 4. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Right? Verse 5. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of Israel are now many, and you, Moses and Aaron, make them rest from their burdens. He's accusing Moses and Aaron here of something. He's accusing them of making his free labor, his slaves, rest from this work that they're supposed to be doing. It's like Pharaoh was saying, you come in here, Moses and Aaron, with your lofty tales of God and deliverance and slavery and covenant promises, blah, 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 blah. And these slaves of mine obviously have time on their hands to think about these things and daydream a bit about deliverance. And now, what? Now they're whining about their situation. I'll give them something to whine about. That's what he's saying here. They've got too much time to think about stuff. They need less thinking and more working. That's what he says when he says, you're making them rest from their burdens. So this is Pharaoh's perspective. So Pharaoh is the leader of a superpower. He's a man of action. So what does it say? Verse 6 says, the same day, Pharaoh's rather rather motivated. It's not on the screen, but it's in your Bibles. Um, It says, verse 6, the same day. Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. So he's got a plan. He gathers some of his uh, underlings, his his taskmasters of the people and their foremen, verse 7. And here's what he says. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. Why? Why? Well, it says, for they are idle. They're resting too much, right? That's what he said in verse 5. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. 
let heavier work be laid on this. So the solution is less brainstorming about Moses, less, less reflecting on deliverance. Here's what I want, verse 9. He says, let heavier work be laid on the men. Why? That they may labor at it. So we need more working, less thinking, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. See the theme here? Verse, look at verse 8 again. For they are idle, therefore they cry. So there's a connection between, in, in his mind, they're lazy, they're not doing their work, and so they're crying out to me and whining to me about how hard everything is. So if we just ramp up the work, that will rec- re- reduce the whining. That's Pharaoh's perspective here, right? They should be so busy, they don't have time to be thinking about Moses and Aaron and all this nonsense. So verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. Verse 12. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Okay, for us to really grasp the gravity of this situation, the degree of suffering that Moses is, is putting on these people, we have to know a little about agriculture here, okay? We have to understand straw, okay? So straw is leftover material from like a long-stemmed uh, vegetable or grain plant, okay? So you harvest it, and then there's going to be a, a stalk, a straw that's going to be left coming out of the ground. And usually it's unedible for humans or for animals. That's why they're using it here to make bricks. So after the harvest, you'd have these rigid stalks of straw. And well, Pharaoh says here in verse 10, I'm not going to give you that anymore. You won't have access to that anymore. And so what are they supposed to do? If there's other people that had private property, I don't know how it worked at the time, but let's just assume there's other people with private property, they're going to use that straw themselves. You can't just go steal from them. So what do they do? Verse 12 says, here's what they had to do. They had to gather stubble. So the the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather, see the word, stubble for straw. So what, what does that mean? What that means is a farmer would come through and cut off the straw and above the ground there might be maybe a two inch little piece of stubble that would be left over after they harvested the straw. You with me? And so, maybe just like a, maybe a two-inch little piece. That's what they mean here by stubble. So as you can imagine, if you were working with something like this before, and then you're reduced to something like this, and you got to travel all over the place to get it, this job is not just hard. This job is impossible. And now it gets ramped up even more. The situation grows from bad to even worse. Look at verse 13. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. So I know there there used to be straw, and now there's not. I don't really care, is what Pharaoh says. And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them. So there's Pharaoh's taskmasters who are Egyptian, and then there's foremen who are Israelite, okay? These are God's people that are the foremen of the people of Israel, verse 14. Whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, 
Those guys get beaten. See it there? They were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Well, because it's impossible. (laughs) And that's what they say. They realize they're in a horrible situation. So what what are they going to do? Well, they're going to try to go straight to the top and complain about it. And that's what they do. Verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. You can't make shoes if you don't have any material to make shoes. You can't build a house unless you've got some two-by-fours, right? This is just, this makes sense. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. So Pharaoh, what's the deal Don't you see this is practically impossible, and then you beat us for this? Look at verse 17. He just repeats the same thing that he's got stuck in his mind. The issue is you guys are lazy. He says it twice for emphasis. You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So he just repeats this idea again, that they're able to think about God, want to go worship him in freedom, just because they have nothing better to do. If you had enough work, all this nonsense would go away. So that's what he says, verse 18. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. So he just doubles down here, right? I don't really care what you're saying. I don't care that it makes no sense mathematically. Figure it out. You can imagine the hopeless situation here. Verse 19, the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. Yes, they were. When they said, you, sh- when you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. So what do they do? They leave Pharaoh and they go and talk to Moses and Aaron. They don't have an audience with Pharaoh. And sort of the next in command in the situation is, is, is Moses and Aaron. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. So they're calling God to hold Moses and Aaron to account. Because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So now they rightly complain to Moses and Aaron as the leaders. Like, what did we do to deserve this? Like, we are getting beaten, we're getting beaten already, and now it's clear that if this doesn't change, they're just going to kill us. So basically, you've given us a death sentence, Moses and Aaron. What's going on? Well, Moses and Aaron, they don't have a good answer. They're just doing what they were told by God. So what do they do? Well, they go to the Lord. And what do they say? They accuse the Lord of evil. They ascribe evil to the Lord. They blame the Lord. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? So why? He asked twice. He wants to know why. Lord, you need to answer for what's happened here. Why? I want an answer. Why? Verse 23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. So basically he says, this whole plot of yours, God, is going south in a hurry. Their slavery, yeah, it was bad for 400 years, but now it's even worse. 
ten times worse. And, and God, this is your idea of deliverance? Ever since we've been obedient to your word, things have not gotten better. They've, in fact, gotten way worse. That's essentially what Moses says. Why, God? Moses wants to know why. You ever felt this way? Sometimes we think that if we just are obedient to the Lord and do what he says, that things will immediately turn out okay. And then when things don't immediately turn out okay, sometimes we're tempted to want to lash out at God. Blame God. We want to call God to account and get some answers. Like, why, God? You ever felt that way? Okay, so let's talk about this. This is, a, this is an uncomfortable biblical truth. Um, it's important for us to remember that just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not biblical. Okay, did you hear that? Just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not biblical. There's no promise in the Bible that obedience to God equals immediate blessing from God. Let me say that again. There's no promise in the Bible that obedience to God equals immediate blessing from God. Now hear me very clearly. Obedience always brings a blessing. That is a promise. But the issue is the timeline. The issue is how long is it going to take for me to receive that blessing? And it might take a while for it to come to pass. There is no promise of immediacy. It might take a lifetime. Sometimes things tragically get, get worse in the short term. Think, of, think about Jesus. This is not hard from what the Bible is not hard to see from, from what the Bible presents. Think about Jesus. He's the most obedient person ever. The Bible makes it clear that he was perfectly obedient. And there is no gospel apart from his perfect obedience, the perfect spotless lamb, the ultimate perfect sacrifice, the ultimate substitute for people who are grossly imperfect. Jesus, the most perfectly obedient person of all time, yet he had to pass through the fire of the cross and death before the glory and blessing of resurrection. So for Jesus, the suffering didn't go away because of obedience. In fact, the suffering increased. But blessing was awaiting him. But it took a lifetime. He, he passed through death to get there. What, what did Jesus say to his followers? He said, Take up your cross and follow me. Let's not sanitize that. Let's not Christianize that. Let's not overly spiritualize that. What does that mean? What he meant was, and he was, he's not being metaphorical here because this happened to some of his first followers. It may be a metaphor for some of us, maybe most of us. But in some sense, we all have to embrace a willingness to lay down our lives. And that may not be comfortable because that's what the cross is. It's an instrument of torture and death. And Jesus says, yeah, I invite you. If you love me, you want to follow me? Okay, here's what that means. That's not comfortable. 
It means that Jesus is so valuable to us that we're willing to embrace an instrument of torture and death for the sake of having him. Jesus promised that in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus promised that if they hated him, they will hate us. Don't, don't forget that we, we worship and follow a murdered homeless guy. I mean, think about the whole book of Exodus. If, if you've been with us these last few weeks, all the way up to this point, did God ever promise Moses that this path that he was calling him to was going to be easy or comfortable? Man, I wish it was in there. I keep looking and I just can't find it. See, if Christianity is your number one means to pursuing short-term comfort in life, you've been reading the wrong Bible or maybe listening to the wrong podcast preachers. There is no promise for your best life now. You will have a best life, and it's going to be eternity. And this life is like a mist. And Romans 8.18 says that your present suffering if you're going to weigh them on, on, the, on the scales, your present suffering isn't even worth comparing to the glory that will be. It's not now, but it will be. It's not your best life now. It's your blessed life that will be. And that's not even worth comparing to what you're dealing with right now. Like if you put them on the scale, it would just be like, boom, so much so that this would just be gone and this would be your all-consuming passion. There will be comfort. There will be rest. There will be blessing. There will be a day when no more tears. Every tear will be wiped away for sure. But oftentimes, that's a long-term thing, not a short-term thing. Sometimes, it does happen short-term, but there's no promise of that. It might be heaven for it to fully come to pass, but take heart. Life is like a mist, and heaven is forever. But in the meantime, Moses has to work through some things, right? And so do we. And I want you to notice how God helps him work through these things. Because it just jumps off the page as we move to chapter 6. See, Moses launches this complaint here, and God responds in chapter 6. And God's form of response is very, very important for Moses to see. That's why God said it. He's not just mixing words. He's not just saying stuff randomly. God has something that Moses needs to see, and and I think he has something for us to see too. See, Moses demands, verse 22, chapter 5, why? Why, God? Why is all this happening? Why bad to worse? But what I want us to see, and what I think what God wants Moses to see, is that he doesn't respond with an answer to the why. He responds with a who. He responds with a who. And the who is way more important than the why. The who is way more important than the why. So as we saw in the video, I recently took a trip with a couple other folks from the Vine uh, to Ecuador and took a couple flights. And uh, on this flight... I got to sit next to a flight attendant. And she was not working. She was dressed as a flight attendant, but she was just en route to get to her next job. And so um, as a passenger, I like to 
when I get on a plane, kind of scan the situation, because you're always wondering, like, okay, what kind of psychos are going to be on this flying tube that I'm going to be trapped with for the next three hours or so? And you know what I mean? Like, just, like, trying to assess the situation. Well, if I see, uh, like, a flight professional, that kind of helps me calm down. Like, oh, that's a good thing. These people do this every day. They know what they're doing. Okay. So I, 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 I scouted this out, and she's going to sit next to me. That's a good thing. Um, but in general, I'm not a huge fan of flying. Um, it kind of pushes on all of my control issues, and especially when there's a lot of turbulence. I've got a weak stomach. I have an irrational fear of vomiting in public places. Like, I have this irrational fear that I'm going to be preaching, and I'm just going to have to barf sometime. And I'm like, I'm like I'm, I have to, like, contemplate, like, the escape route. Like, would I go back here? Or, like, you know, I think about these things. It's a rational fear. It's dumb. I know. But flying just is one of those. You're, you're trapped. Where am I going to go? Turbulence, weak stomach, control issues, you know. So I was helped by the fact that she's sitting next to me. And I got to ask her a lot of questions about the ins and outs of being a flight attendant. And she had some crazy stories. It was awesome. And, and her presence was comforting for me. Now, let's say we hit a bunch of turbulence. Now, one of the things she could do for me to help me as I'm dealing with anxiety about flight turbulence is she could break down the science of why we are having flight turbulence. And there's all these wind currents, and they're crossing one another, and there's changes in pressure, and there's storms sometimes, and weather complications, blah, 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 blah. And that would answer the why question. Why are we having turbulence? Well, here's why. But the answer to the why wouldn't make me feel any better in that moment, would it? Because the turbulence is just going to keep happening until you pass through it, right? i got to pass through it no matter what. So knowing the why wouldn't make that turbulence go away. But was, what, what does make me feel better? What makes me feel better is who is seated right next to me and she isn't stressed at all. In fact, she says, this is really nothing. This happens all the time. This plane is going to land. It's going to be fine. See, she doesn't give me any answers to why, but I have her professional presence right next to me. She's a professional, and she's with me. I don't need an answer to the why of turbulence. I just need to know that someone is with me who knows how all this all works and says it's going to be fine. Who is with me? right next to me is way more powerful than a detailed answer to the why question when you're in the midst of suffering. See, Moses needs to learn, and we're going to see him learn, that the who is way more important than the why. That the qualifications, that the resume, like my flight attendant friend, is way more important. This is who I am. Is way more important than the why. You got to know who I am. Verse 1, chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. <clears throat> I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as Almighty God. By my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, second time. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Third time, I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Isaac, Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. The fourth time. It's not a why, it's a who. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of the land of Egypt. So do you feel the major differences between chapter 5 and chapter 6? It kind of jumps off the page, doesn't it? See, chapter 5, the problem looms really large. And it's a big problem. We shouldn't diminish it. Put yourself in those shoes. That's a big problem. Moses and Aaron, serious pressure. But Moses is consumed with the problem, and he's demanding logical answers. But God doesn't give logical answers. Logic doesn't make him feel better. What, what, what does he give? He gives himself. He asks Moses to think more about him and his word than his problem. He says, Moses, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. See that emphasis in chapter 6? It's repeated for a purpose. I, 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 over and over again. Just let your eyes glance over verses 1 through 8. I, I, I. The the, the emphasis of chapter 5 is the problem. And God says, that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is me. You need me. You need to trust me. You need to know me. You need to know what's true about me. I am the Lord, meaning Pharaoh's not Lord. I know Pharaoh seems like he's Lord. He's playing Lord right now. You're going to see in time, it's a matter of time, he's not Lord. It's a matter of time, every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess. Pharaoh's not Lord. He thinks he's sovereign, I'm sovereign. I am the Lord, Pharaoh is not Lord. Focus on me, Moses. I made promises that will come to pass, and I will do it. I am the Lord, Moses. Focus on me. He's like, Pharaoh, I know that in your face right now is the tyranny of this urgent problem. But fight for your focus to be on the one who can actually solve the problem. I'm bigger than these problems. I'm more important than these problems. I will do what I say I will do in my time for my glory and for my purposes. And if you stay obedient to me in the midst of the chaos, it's all going to work out. You just have to know me. 
It's kind of like this. Can you imagine, I mean, tragically, God forbid this happens to any of us, but having a child, let's say a three-year-old, that has cancer. And they want to know why they hurt so bad. You can't explain to them the why in a way that's going to help. Well, here's the science of cancer and how it's affecting your body and all this and white blood cells and red blood cells and lymph nodes and all this. Like a three-year-old's just like, boom, I got nothing. Right? But what does that three-year-old need? Daddy loves you. Daddy's right here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. I'm for you. Trust me. I'm with you. Stay right here, right by me. I got gotcha. you. I want you to remember who I am, and I am with you. That's kind of what this is like. See, in, in, the, in, the, in the throne room of God, for him to like break down to us what he's up to in terms of the thousand different things that are happening in his sovereignty to see his plan move forward in the world, if he tried to break all that down for us and what he's doing in the details and the minutiae, Man, it would just make our heads explode because he's God and we're not. He's infinite and we're finite. He's unlimited. We have got a, a ceiling. We've got a cap. We've got limitations. We're not called to have all the answers. Only God has that. Only he can be God. We can't play God. That's why he does what he does here with Moses. Moses can't understand the depth of his sovereignty in terms of why why 400 years of slavery, God? I don't know why 400 years. That's a long time. God doesn't explain it. Why, God, didn't you, did you make these people of yours get beat up unjustly? God doesn't explain that. And sometimes we wish that he would. In, in the lives here in this book, in your life that you're going through right now. But evidently what God knows is that we don't need answers as much as we need him. And he asks us to trust him and to know him and to draw near to him. Remember the who. Remember the who, Moses. Remember the who, Vine Church. It's more important than the why. Soon you will see. Soon enough you will see. So we hold on in faith. Soon enough we will see. So we, you ever feel like Moses? Obedience maybe sometimes feels like it brings about more sorrow than blessing. You ever feel like that? I want to remind you that Jesus said that he is the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And a few chapters before this, God showed up to Moses and said, I am. Tell him I am sent you. And Jesus says a few centuries later, I'm that guy. The Father and I are one. And what I want you to see is that when Jesus is talking to his first followers a few centuries later, he says something very, very similar to what Moses hears from God. In John 16, he says this, I have said these things to you, Jesus, saying this, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. So God doesn't want to leave us in crazy anxiety of wondering, well, why is this happening I thought I was being obedient. It seems like it's not working out for me. It's like, I, I don't want to leave you in the chaos. I want you to have peace. 
But, but remember, in the world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. In the world, meaning in this temporal life that we live right now, you will have tribulation. But take heart. All you have to do is think positive thoughts and it'll be fine. Is that what it says? But take heart. If you just work a little harder, it'll be good. Take heart. If you just have, you got to get some self-esteem here, right? You just have, you just, you just low self-esteem, Moses. That's not what it says. What does it say? Very similarly, take heart, I. Remember the repetition in chapter 6? I, 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 I. Jesus says the exact same thing. It's not about you. It's about me. I have overcome the world. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time, Moses, for you to see Pharaoh's armies washed away. Deliverance. Jesus says, it's just a matter of time. I have overcome the world. It's just a matter of time. You're going to see that tomb is empty. And all of my words confirmed so that you can place your trust in me. So you don't have to be consumed with the chaos of your circumstances that are staring you right here in the tyranny of the urgent and the suffering and the craziness. Soon enough, you're going to see that it's going to work out. And you're going to stand back, and there's going to be this massive mural of your life. And you're going to see how it all fits together. When you're staring at it two inches away, it looks really ugly. When you stand back 200 feet and see how it all fits, it's beautiful. It's, that day's coming. It's not right now. But that day is coming because I have overcome the world. So what's your focus? In the, min, in the meantime, while you're staring at the chaos, and you can't see the mural, how it all fits together, you can't see the big mosaic, in the meantime, what's, what's the comfort? The comfort is I. I have overcome the world. You need me, and I've given myself to you. Come to me and find rest. Let's pray. Father, would you help us believe? We believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we, we thank you for your word that orients us towards your heart. And may it continue to happen day after day. In Jesus' name, amen.